0: The Island of Doctor Moreau by H. G. Wells, read by Bob Newfeld. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Introduction. On February the first, eighteen eighty-seven. The Lady Vane was lost by collision with a derelict when about the latitude ten degrees south and longitude one hundred seven degrees west. On January the fifth, eighteen eighty eight, that is, eleven months and four days after my uncle, Edward Prendick, a private gentleman who certainly went aboard the Lady Vane at Callao, and who had been considered drowned, was picked up in latitude fifty degrees three minutes south and longitude one hundred and one degrees west. In a small open boat, of which the name was illegible, but which is supposed to have belonged to the missing schooner Ipecacuanha. He gave such a strange account of himself that he was supposed demented. Subsequently, he alleged that his mind was a blank from the moment of his escape from the Lady Vane. His case was discussed among psychologists at the time as a curious instance of the lapse of memory consequent upon physical and mental stress. The following narrative was found among his papers by the undersigned, his nephew and heir, but unaccompanied by any definite request for publication. The only island known to exist in the region in which my uncle was picked up is Noble's Isle, a small volcanic islet and uninhabited. It was visited in 1891 by H. M. S. Scorpion. A party of sailors then landed, but found nothing living thereon. "'except certain curious white moths, some hogs and rabbits, and some rather peculiar rats. "'So that this narrative is without confirmation in its most essential particular. "'With that understood, there seems no harm in putting this strange story before the public in "'accordance, as I believe, with my uncle's intentions. There is at least this much in its "'behalf.' my uncle passed out of human knowledge about latitude fifty degrees south and longitude one hundred and five degrees east, and reappeared in the same part of the ocean after a space of eleven months. In some way he must have lived during the interval, and it seems that a schooner called the Ipecaquana, with a drunken captain, John Davies, did start from Africa with a puma and certain other animals aboard in January 1887 that the vessel was well known at several ports in the South Pacific, and that it finally disappeared from those seas, with a considerable amount of copra aboard, sailing to its unknown fate from Bina in December 1887, a date that tallies entirely with my uncle's story. Charles Edward Prendick The Story Written by Edward Prendick CHAPTER One in the dinghy of the Lady Vane. I do not propose to add anything to what has already been written concerning the loss of the Lady Vane. As every one knows, she collided with a derelict when ten days out from Kallau. The longboat, with seven of the crew, was picked up eighteen days after by H. M. Gunboat Myrtle, and the story of their terrible privations has become quite as well known as the far more horrible Medusa case. But I have to add to the published story of the Lady Vane another, possibly as horrible and far stranger. It has hitherto been supposed that the four men who were in the dinghy perished, but this is incorrect. I have the best of evidence for this assertion. I was one of the four men. But in the first place I must state that there never were four men in the dinghy, the number was three. Constanz, who was seen by the captain to jump into the gig, luckily for us, and unluckily for himself, did not reach us. He came down out of the tangle of ropes, under the stays of the smashed bowsprit. Some small rope caught his heel as he let go, and he hung for a moment head downward, and then fell and struck a block or spar floating in the water. We pulled towards him. But he never came up. I say luckily for us he did not reach us, and I might also say luckily for himself, for we had only a small beaker of water and some soddened ship's biscuits with us, so sudden had been the alarm, so unprepared the ship for any disaster. We thought the people on the launch would be better provisioned, though it seems they were not, and we tried to hail them. They could not have heard us and the next morning, when the drizzle cleared, which was not until past midday, we could see nothing of them. We could not stand up to look about us, because of the pitching of the boat. The two other men who had escaped so far with me were a man named Helmar, a passenger like myself, and a seaman, whose name I don't know, a short, sturdy man, with a stammer. We drifted famishing, and after our water had come to an end, tormented by an intolerable thirst, for eight days altogether. After the second day, the sea subsided slowly to a glassy calm. It is quite impossible for the ordinary reader to imagine those eight days. He has not, luckily for himself, anything in his memory to imagine with. After the first day we said little to one another, and lay in our places in the boat and stared at the horizon, or watched, with eyes that grew larger and more haggard every day, the misery and weakness gaining upon our companions. The sun became pitiless. The water ended on the fourth day, and we were already thinking strange things and saying them with our eyes. But it was, I think, the sixth before Helmar gave voice to the thing we had all been thinking. I remember our voices were dry and thin, so that we bent towards one another and spared our words. I stood out against it with all my might, it was rather for scuttling the boats and perishing together among the sharks that followed us. But when Helmar said that if his proposal was accepted, we should have drink, the sailor came round to him. I would not draw lots, however— and in the night the sailor whispered to Helmar again and again, and I sat in the bows with my clasp knife in my hand, though I doubt if I had the stuff in me to fight. And in the morning I agreed to Helmar's proposal, and we handed halfpence to find the odd man. The lot fell upon the sailor, but he was the strongest of us and would not abide by it, and attacked Helmar with his hands. They grappled together and almost stood up. I crawled along the boat to them, intending to help Helmar by grasping the sailor's leg. But the sailor stumbled with the swaying of the boat, and the two fell upon the gunwale and rolled overboard together. They sank like stones. I remember laughing at that, and wondering why I laughed. The laugh caught me suddenly, like a thing from without. I lay across one of the thwarts, for I know not how long, thinking that if I had the strength, I would drink sea-water and madden myself to die quickly and even as I lay there, I saw with no more interest than if it had been a picture, a sail come up towards me over the skyline. My mind must have been wandering, and yet I remember all that happened quite distinctly. I remember how my head swayed with the seas and the horizon with a sail above it danced up and down but i also remember as distinctly that i had a persuasion that i was dead and that i thought what a jest it was that they should come too late by such a little to catch me in my body for an endless period as it seemed to me i lay with my head on a thwart watching the schooner she was a little ship schooner rigged fore and aft come up out of the sea She kept tacking to and fro in a widening compass, for she was sailing dead into the wind. It never entered my head to attempt to attract attention, and I do not remember anything distinctly after the sight of her side, until I found myself in a little cabin aft. There's a dim half-memory of being lifted up to the gangway, and of a big round countenance, covered with freckles and surrounded with red hair, staring at me over the bulwarks. I also had a discontented impression of a dark face, with extraordinary eyes close to mine. But that, I thought, was a nightmare, until I met it again. I fancy I recollect some stuff being poured in between my teeth. And that is all. CHAPTER Two: THE MAN WHO WAS GOING NOWHERE The cabin in which I found myself was small and rather untidy. A youngish man with flaxen hair, a bristly straw-coloured moustache, and a dropping nether lip, was sitting and holding my wrist. For a minute we stared at each other without speaking. He had watery grey eyes, oddly void of expression. Then, just overhead, came a sound like an iron bedstead being knocked about and the low angry growling of some large animal. At the same time the man spoke. He repeated his question. How do you feel now? I think, I said, I felt all right. I could not recollect how I had got there. He must have seen the question in my face, for my voice was inaccessible to me. You were picked up on a boat, starving. The name on the boat was the Lady Vane, and there were spots of blood on the gunwale. At the same time my eye caught my hand, so thin that it looked like a dirty skin-purse full of loose bones, and all the business of the boat came back to me. "'Have some of this,' said he, and gave me a dose of some scarlet stuff, iced. It tasted like blood, and made me feel stronger. You were in luck,' said he, To get picked up by a ship with a medical man aboard. He spoke with a slobbering articulation, with the ghost of a lisp. What ship is this? I said slowly, hoarse from my long silence. It's a little trader from Africa and Calao. I never asked where she came from in the beginning. Out of the land of born fools, I guess. I'm a passenger myself, from Africa. The silly ass who owns her his captain, too, named Davies, he's lost his certificate, or something. You know the kind of man, calls the thing the Ipecaquana, of all silly infernal names. Though when there's much of a sea without any wind, she certainly acts accordingly.' Then the noise overhead began again, a snarling growl and the voice of a human being together, telling some heaven-forsaken idiot to desist. You were nearly dead," said my interlocutor. "It is a very near thing indeed, but I've put some stuff into you now. Notice your arms, sir. Injections. You've been insensible for nearly thirty hours. I thought slowly. I was distracted now by the yelping of a number of dogs. Am I eligible for solid food? I asked. Thanks to me," he said even now the mutton is boiling.' "'Yes,' I said with assurance, "'I could eat some mutton.' "'But,' said he, with a momentary hesitation, "'you know, I'm dying to hear of how you came to be alone in that boat. Damn that howling!' I thought I detected a certain suspicion in his eyes. He suddenly left the cabin, and I heard him in violent controversy with someone—' who seemed to me to talk gibberish in response to him the matter sounded as if it ended in blows but in that i thought my ears were mistaken then he shouted at the dogs and returned to the cabin well said he in the doorway you were just beginning to tell me i told him my name edward prendick and how i had taken to natural history as a relief from the dullness of my comfortable independence he seemed interested in this. I've done some science myself. I did my biology at university college, getting out the ovary of the earthworm and the radula of the snail and all that. Lord, it's ten years ago. But go on. Tell me about the boat. He was evidently satisfied with the frankness of my story, which I told in concise sentences enough, for I felt horribly weak. And when it was finished, he reverted at once to the topic of natural history and his own biological studies. He began to question me closely about Tottenham Court Road and Gower Street. Is Kaplatzi still flourishing? What a shop that was! He had evidently been a very ordinary medical student, and drifted incontinently to the topic of the music halls. He told me some anecdotes. Left it all, he said, ten years ago. How jolly it all used to be! But I made a young ass of myself, played myself out before I was twenty-one. I dare say it's all different now. But I must look up that ass of a cook and see what he's done to your mutton. The growling overhead was renewed, so suddenly, and with so much savage anger, that it startled me. What's that? I called after him, but the door had closed. He came back again with the boiled mutton, and I was so excited by the appetizing smell of it, that I forgot the noise of the beast that had troubled me. After a day of alternate sleep and feeding, I was so far recovered as to be able to get from my bunk to the scuttle, and see the green seas trying to keep pace with us. I judged the schooner was running before the wind. Montgomery—that was the name of the flaxen-haired man— came in again as I stood there, and I asked him for some clothes. He lent me some duck things of his own, for those I had worn in the boats had been thrown overboard. They were rather loose for me, for he was large and long in his limbs. He told me casually that the captain was three parts drunk in his own cabin. As I assumed the clothes, I began asking him some questions about the destination of the ship. He said the ship was bound to Hawaii, but that it had to land him first. Where, said I, it's an island where I live. So far as I know, it hasn't got a name. He stared at me with his nether lip dropping, and looked so wilfully stupid of a sudden, that it came into my head that he desired to avoid my question. I had the discretion to ask no more. Chapter 3 The Strange Face We left the cabin, and found a man at the companion obstructing our way. He was standing on the ladder with his back to us, peering over the combing of the hatchway. He was, I could see, a misshapen man, short, broad, and clumsy, with a crooked back, a hairy neck, and a head sunk between his shoulders. He was dressed in dark-blue serge, and had peculiarly thick, coarse black hair. I heard the unseen dogs growl furiously, and forthwith he ducked back, coming into contact with the hand I put out to fend him off from myself. He turned with animal swiftness. In some indefinable way, the black face thus flashed upon me shocked me profoundly. It was a singularly deformed one. The facial part projected, forming something dimly suggestive of a muzzle, and the huge half open mouth showed as big white teeth as I had ever seen in a human mouth. His eyes were bloodshot at the edges, with scarcely a rim of white round the hazel pupils. There was a curious glow of excitement in his face. "'Confound you!' said Montgomery. "'Why the devil don't you get out of the way?' The black-faced man started aside without a word. I went on up the companion, staring at him instinctively as I did so. "'Montgomery stayed at the foot for a moment. "'You have no business here, you know,' he said in a deliberate tone. "'Your place is forward.' The black-faced man cowered. "'They won't have me forward.' He spoke slowly, with a queer, hoarse quality in his voice. "'Won't have you forward,' said Montgomery, in a menacing voice. "'But I tell you to go.' He was on the brink of saying something further, then looked up at me suddenly, and followed me up the ladder. I had paused half-way through the hatchway, looking back, still astonished beyond measure, at the grotesque ugliness of the black-faced creature. I had never beheld such a repulsive and extraordinary face before, and yet, if the contradiction is credible, I experienced at the same time an odd feeling that in some way I had already encountered exactly the features and gestures that now amazed me. Afterwards it occurred to me that probably I had seen him as I was lifted aboard, and yet that scarcely satisfied my suspicion of a previous acquaintance. Yet how one could have set eyes on so singular a face and yet have forgotten the precise occasion passed my imagination. Montgomery's movements to follow me released my attention, and I turned and looked about me at the flush deck of the little schooner. I was already half prepared by the sounds I had heard for what I saw. Certainly I never beheld a deck so dirty. It was littered with scraps of carrot, shreds of green stuff, and indescribable filth. Fastened by chains to the main mast were a number of grisly stag-hounds, Who now began leaping and barking at me. And by the mizzen a huge puma was cramped in a little iron cage far too small even to give it turning room. Farther under the starboard bulwark were some big hutches containing a number of rabbits, and a solitary llama was squeezed in a mere box of a cage forward. The dogs were muzzled by leather straps. The only human being on deck was a gaunt and silent sailor at the wheel. The patched and dirty spankers were tense before the wind, and up aloft the little ship seemed carrying every sail she had. The sky was clear, the sun midway down the western sky. Long waves, capped by the breeze with froth, were running with us. We went past the steersman to the taffrail, saw the water come foaming under the stern, and the bubbles go dancing and vanishing in her wake. I turned and surveyed the unsavoury length of the ship. "'Is this an ocean menagerie?' said I. "'Looks like it,' said Montgomery. "'What are these beasts for? Merchandise? Curios? Does the captain think he is going to sell them somewhere in the South Seas?' "'It looks like it, doesn't it?' said Montgomery, and turned towards the wake again. Suddenly we heard a yelp and a volley of furious blasphemy— from the companion hatchway, and the deformed man with the black face came up hurriedly. He was immediately followed by a heavy red-haired man in a white cap. At the sight of the former, the staghounds, who had all tired of barking at me by this time, became furiously excited, howling and leaping against their chains. The black hesitated before them, and this gave the red-haired man time to come up with him and deliver a tremendous blow between the shoulder-blades the poor devil went down like a felled ox, and rolled in the dirt among the furiously excited dogs. It was lucky for him that they were muzzled. The red-haired man gave a yelp of exultation, and stood staggering, and, as it seemed to me, in serious danger of either going backwards down the companion hatchway, or forwards upon his victim. So soon as the second man had appeared, Montgomery had started forward. "'Steady on there!' he cried, in a tone of remonstrance. A couple of sailors appeared on the forecastle. The black-faced man, howling in a singular voice, rolled about under the feet of the dogs. No one attempted to help him. The brutes did their best to worry him, butting their muzzles at him. There was a quick dance of their little grey-figured bodies over the clumsy prostrate figure. The sailors forward shouted, as though it was admirable sport. Montgomery gave an angry exclamation, and went striding down the deck, and I followed him. The black-faced man scrambled up and staggered forward, going and leaning over the bulwark by the main shrouds, where he remained, panting and glaring over his shoulder at the dogs. The red-haired man laughed a satisfied laugh. "'Look here, Captain,' said Montgomery, with his lisp a little accentuated, gripping the elbows of the red-haired man—' this won't do.' I stood behind Montgomery. The captain came half round, and regarded him with the dull and solemn eyes of a drunken man. "'What won't do?' he said, and added, after looking sleepily into Montgomery's face for a minute, "'Blasted sawbones!' With a sudden movement he shook his arms free, and after two ineffectual attempts stuck his freckled fists into his side pockets. "'That man's a passenger,' said Montgomery. "'I'd advise you to keep your hands off him.' "'Go to hell,' said the captain, loudly. He suddenly turned and staggered towards the side. "'Do what I like on my own ship,' he said. I think Montgomery might have left him then, seeing the brute was drunk. But he only turned a shade paler and followed the captain to the bulwarks.' Look you here, captain, he said, that man of mine is not to be ill treated. He has been hazed ever since he came aboard. For a minute alcoholic fumes kept the captain speechless. Blasted sawbones was all he considered necessary. I could see that Montgomery had one of those slow, pertinacious tempers that will warm day after day to a white heat and never again cool to forgiveness and I saw, too, that this quarrel had been some time growing. The man's drunk, said I, perhaps officiously. You'll do no good. Montgomery gave an ugly twist to his dropping lip. He's always drunk. Do you think that excuses his assaulting his passengers? My ship, began the captain, waving his hand unsteadily towards the cages, was a clean ship. Look at it now. It was certainly anything but clean. "'Crew,' continued the captain, "'clean, respectable crew. You agreed to take the beasts.' "'I wish I never set eyes on your infernal island. What the devil want beasts for on an island like that? Then, that man of yours. Understood he was a man. He's a lunatic.' and he hadn't no business aft. Do you think the whole damned ship belongs to you? Your sailors began to haze the poor devil as soon as he came aboard. That's just what he is. He's a devil, an ugly devil. My men can't stand him. I can't stand him. None of us can't stand him, nor you either. Montgomery turned away. You'll leave that man alone, anyhow, he said, nodding his head as he spoke. But the captain meant to quarrel now. He raised his voice. If he comes this end of the ship again, I'll cut his insides out, I tell you. Cut out his blasted insides. Who are you to tell me what I'm to do? I tell you I'm captain of this ship, captain and owner.' "'I'm the law here, I tell you, the law and the prophets. I bargained to take a man and his attendant to and from Africa, and bring back some animals. I never bargained to carry a mad devil and a silly sawbones, uh, a—well, never mind what he called Montgomery.' I saw the latter take a step forward, and interposed. "'He's drunk,' said I the captain began some abuse even fouler than the last. "'Shut up!' I said, turning on him sharply, for I had seen danger in Montgomery's white face. With that I brought the downpour on myself. However, I was glad to avert what was uncommonly near a scuffle, even at the price of the captain's drunken ill-will. I do not think I have ever heard quite so much vile language come in a continuous stream from any man's lips before, though I have frequented eccentric company enough. I found some of it hard to endure, though I am a mild-tempered man. But certainly, when I told the captain to shut up, I had forgotten that I was merely a bit of human flotsam, cut off from my resources, and with my fare unpaid.' a mere casual dependent on the bounty or speculative enterprise of the ship he reminded me of it with considerable vigour but at any rate i prevented a fight End of part one